Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Guy Adami, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Ahead on fast, trouble for the trucks and trains. The Dow transports down nearly 10% in the last week. Is this an early warning sign for a market breakdown ahead? One of our traders is actually buying right now. Plus, so much for being a silent partner. Elon Musk going from passive investor to board member. In less than 24 hours, the impact of Musk muscling in at Twitter straight ahead. And later, a mystery stock hitting an all-time high. It's a Dow component that sells everything from shampoo to motor oil to diamonds. And you won't find one here in New York City. But we start off here with the easy come, easy go market. The Nasdaq closing near the lows of the day, down two and a quarter percent and erasing all of the gains for the month. The S&P and Dow also pulling back sharply after a strong start to April. And take a look at some of the high valuation stocks getting absolutely crushed today. Rivian dropping more than 9%. The move coming as 10-year yields spike above 2.5%, hitting their highest levels in nearly two years. So does today's action mark the end of the bear market rally? Tim, what do you say? Look at this uh, big desk here. This is kind of nice by folks at home. By the way, there's three of us. And, three of us. And, yes. and plus, of course, Melissa. Anyway, so let's get back to the question. <laughs> it, it, it's a case where, uh, first of all, 251 on the two-year means we're at, you know, effectively, for most people, it seems like all-time highs. No, it's not all-time highs, but again, the move higher. Uh, at semis down 4.3%. Discussed the transports, a 10% move in five sessions. I mean, this is, uh, you're getting it from the most cyclical parts of the market. And I think today's catalyst really was Dale Brainerd, who typically has been the most dovish member of the Fed and, in fact, is about to be appointed as the vice chair of the Fed, has suddenly gotten very nervous, is talking about not dumping, but it felt like dumping the nine trillion in assets on the Fed balance sheet and that they were going to do this faster than the market had expected. Yeah, that and then also getting inflation down is paramount. So she was really being quite hawkish here in the market stand. Yeah, you know, here's the thing, right? If we're going to start listening to Fed governors, we're going to start selling high valuation tech stocks. It brings me back to a period where the last time investors were contemplating what rate hikes, like what a tightening Fed really felt like. And if you go back to 15 and you go back to 16, and we were concerned about global growth. And I realize it's very different this time around here. I'm not liking the prospect of, you know, if even on a day like today with crude down back to 100 or whatever, if we start to see the dollar go up, we start seeing crude go down, you start seeing stocks pick up in volatility like this, especially with the backdrop of uncertainty, Europe that's very likely to be in a recession, and then the, the likelihood that we're pricing in a, a recession in uh, 2023, at some point, stocks only down 5% are going to start to actually have to price that in a little bit. And I don't think that we've really done that appropriately. I don't think... A 15% peak to top decline in the S&P 500 from January 4th to its lows a few weeks ago adequately really kind of encapsulates all of the uncertainty we have right now. We talk all the time about the market isn't a monolith. There are some that have just gotten annihilated, mm-hmm. right? And if you look at the IGV, which we look at a lot, these high flyer, all these sort of art kind of names just getting obliterated. Software ETF. Yes, the software ETF, that's sort of, uh, it's indicative of the high flyer. So to me, I feel like that's already deep in a bear market, despite that rally that we had the last two weeks. So I, I think it should stay in the bear market because I totally agree with your point about Leo Brainerd. I think that she is the most dovish. She's clearly in the hawkish camp now. Yep. And I think that the Fed does such a good job, I think, of communicating. And they're going to do it again and again. And I think we're going to hear that message about how hawkish the mm-hmm. Fed is 
a few times in the next, I don't know how long, I guess, but did, minutes this but week. You sound almost you know, sanguine about that, like, like you know, the market's they, doing what it needs to do. Yes, kind of. I feel like it is doing what it needs to do. And then I come back to, we're going to start to switch to earnings the end of next week. Right. We'll start to hear from the banks. I know everyone hates the banks, but I was looking at, you know, J.P. Morgan 10Q, 10K, I know you hate uh, J.P. Morgan, um, and I love Jamie Dimon, but that's beside the point. They are asset sensitive. They will make more money with rates going up, even with the curve the way it is now. Doesn't matter, though. I guess if everyone hates banks, they hate them. But I'm long going in. In that shareholder letter, though, Diamond, your favorite, did point out mm-hmm. that a risk to the markets is that the Fed is going to move much faster. So here we are, Guy. How do you make sense of all these sort of mixed messages? Some sectors of the market are already deep into bear market territory. They felt the pain, those arc names. Um, others are, are close to all-time highs still. And we have a sell-off in bonds and stocks. I'd agree with Karen about the monolith thing, except that I don't know what monolith means, so that becomes problematic for me. (laughs) But I'll say this in terms of the Fed. Tim says that it should be a bumper sticker. More Fed means more volatility. And for whatever reason, the last month or so, the market hasn't seemed to care. I don't think it fully uh, understands or comprehends what's really going on here. And by definition, if by fighting the Fed, when the Fed is easing and adding liquidity, you're being bearish, that's fine. I get it. But that same definition, if you're fighting the Fed now, effectively fighting the Fed now means you're bullish. So I'm surprised at how high we've gotten in both the Nasdaq and the S&P. I still think lower. I'm in Dan Nathan's camp. I'm not trying to be um, apocalyptic here by any stretch, but I, I don't think the market fully realizes what not having a Fed backstop, what not having a Federal Reserve effectively underwriting this market, which is effectively what they've done for the last decade and a half, means. Yeah, and I don't mean to sound so certain about this, but this seems really obvious to me. The Fed is going to overdo it right now. They're going to convince market participants that they have to be this hawkish when you have the most big, you know, the biggest dub saying what she did today, and they're going to do a 50 basis point. You look at that CME Fed tracker. I look at it every day here. It's pricing an 80% chance of a 50 basis point hike in May, and then maybe in June. Yeah, 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 it's your show. I mean, you do you. you, 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 Uh Um, But, okay, so the Elon Musk of this show, do whatever you want. Go ahead. you say, Dan, that you, the, the Fed is going to do its best to convince the markets. Yeah. So you're talking about Fed funds futures, et cetera. Yeah. But how about the equity markets? Has the Fed convinced the equity markets yet? No, I, I mean, okay. clearly not. And so, so my, my point is this, this, but this is what's obvious to me. They're going to overdo it right now, and then they're going to shift. They're going to do what they had to do in December 2018. You know why? Because we are going to see the slowdown. S&P earnings do not price that in right now for the balance of this yeah. year. And when they get dovish, when they reverse, that's probably going to be the worst time for equities, in my opinion. And again, what's different this time than 2018? $4 trillion on the, on the Fed's balance sheet. That's what's different. Rates mm-hmm. cannot go up meaningfully from here. If they do, the well, economy is going to have a problem and the equity market is going to start discounting it right away. Yeah. And, and first quarter earnings are going to be and they've been downgraded a bit, but they're still somewhere around five or six percent in the fourth quarter. They were north of 30. So so the certainty is not that the Fed is going to screw this up. The certainty is that equity valuations um, need to be assessed differently in a higher rate environment. That's just that's just kind of principle of investing. What we don't know is what the companies are going to tell us in terms of the strength of their business, mm-hmm. the strength of the consumer. And, and I would look at revolving 
and credit, especially as it is around auto loans, credit cards, um, home equity. These go up immediately. So just to be clear, I mean, these are sensitive. These are LIBOR plus. And I think we have a consumer that, that is, is very much uh, addicted to low rates. And I don't think we've seen that. So that, that's what equities can't do until we get there, even though the market is a discounting mechanism. So two points I want to make. The first, what 18, we, you had a very different administration that was just pounding on the Fed, tweeting all the time. You, you know, you got to you got to lower rates, you got to lower rates. I don't think we're in that environment anymore for the four trillion. That's one reason. But also, this is a different administration. And I think that this Fed will try to be less beholden to the market. But the administration's more have, worried about inflation right now. Yeah. You know, think about that. So, th- so listen, it's different. I, my, my point is, is that if we have material slowdown, and I'll go back to you, um, they're going to have to get a bit more dovish because the rates have already moved in front of it. That's why we have this inverted yield curve, right? So they're not going to be able to go meaningfully higher here. But right now, in 2022, into the midterms, they're worried about inflation. At some point, as you get closer to that, I think they switch. I mean, I think, I think what Lael Brainerd said today in in her testimony was key, and that is, you know, if you take a look at lower to middle income households, they spend 70% of their household income on necessities, things that are more subject to inflationary pressures, Guy, and that's what's going to be squarely in Fed focus. And I hate to put these two things together, but it is a midterm election year, and we can't ignore that fact either. No, you absolutely to everybody's point, absolutely not. And what's different from now and October, November, December of 2018 is nobody uttered the word inflation for basically a decade. Now it's on top of mind for everybody. Rightly so, by the way. And I'm 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 glad that these Fed officials are so concerned about, you know, middle middle America and people are living paycheck to paycheck because they got what they asked for. They've been begging for inflation for 10 years, and now they got it. They always thought they could control it. Clearly, that's not the case. So will they overshoot? They have to. They have no choice. The next CPI readings have a nine handle on it. When's the last time you saw that? I don't know about that. I mean, 7.9 was pretty high since the 80s, Tim, right? Well, it, it is. And, and I think we've all discussed both the lag effect of, first of all, ags, uh, whether you have the salts, the bulks, these, these things that are probably a nine-month delay. I don't think we've even started to see where labor price inflation goes. Uh, I think you just get back to a case where uh, the consumer who has also uh, been thrown money, we gave away 25% of GDP in the last couple of years. The most important in inflationary impact, and this is empirical, it's been studied, it's not the rate at zero, it's, it's, the, it's the QE. And, and if you look at the, the four different QE periods that we've had, and I think the unwinding of the balance sheet, which is what she talked about today, uh, and that was what was different about this versus some other stuff, is the part that I am most worried about in terms of the impact of what it does to both the markets and the consumer. And again, remember the Fed, you know, Fed portfolio we talked about during COVID in the early days, the stuff they were going in and buying. We were wondering why they were buying AAA Apple debt. We were wondering why they were going in and buying stuff that wouldn't really interest rate sensitive. Yeah. All right. So let me ask you this. You just talked about banks, Karen, before. Mm-hmm. What are they telling you? Like, I'm looking at the mega cap names that are the keeping the S&P trade? kind of elevated right. here. And the bank stocks going into their earnings next week. We know JP is going to report on the 13th and a few others. You know, it's just a few bucks over its lows. Just, I mean, they trade horribly. And I'd like to think that investors and in bank stocks, like big investors, they're doing smart things in front of events like that or periods. I'm just curious because to me, not encouraging. Mm-hmm. So the bank stocks, how they trade before earnings has not been a good indicator of those earnings at all. In fact, it's been a terrible, right. They trade well. They've been earning well for a while, right? They, you know, were able, they put aside reserves, huge reserves during the pandemic and yet still were able to make money. Then they were able to reverse some of those reserves. And so 
I think three or four times they traded really well into earnings and really bad. But what bad if we're out. on the precipice of something? That, that's kind of my that point be, here. Are I'm, they kind of like that? To me, is one of the big risks. Are uh, we on the precipice of something? I always look at the HYG. Oh, I always look at the LQD it's and credit. C. Right. Credit is just starting to widen a little bit. This in itself, the magnitude of the move today, nothing to worry about. But if you get a couple days of it, credit, it's a psychological thing. People start to get nervous. That, to me, is, is one of the bigger risks. Let's turn now to a developing story in the airline space. Spirit Airlines stock jumping after the company said it received an unsolicited takeover offer for JetBlue. A bid could derail a merger between Spirit and Frontier. Phil LeBeau is here with the very latest, and we did hear from JetBlue, Phil. We did, Melissa, and JetBlue is putting on the full court press to tell investors at Spirit, look, we think this is a better deal. We believe you will ultimately see that this is a better merger than merging with Frontier. Here is the offer from JetBlue to Spirit, $33 a share in cash. That comes out to $3.6 billion. It is an unsolicited offer. JetBlue saying just a few minutes ago, it firmly believes its proposal constitutes a superior proposal under Spirit's merger agreement with Frontier and represents the most attractive opportunity for Spirit's shareholders. By the way, if JetBlue and Spirit were to merge, it would create the fifth largest airline in the United States. As for Spirit, well, they did confirm that they received an offer from JetBlue. The company says that, well, we're going to review that. Remember, just a month ago, just February 7th, they agreed to be bought effectively by Frontier in a $2.9 billion merger. Here's the statement from Spirit today saying the board will conduct this evaluation, meaning the evaluation of the JetBlue bid, in accordance with the terms of the company's merger agreement with Frontier and respond in due course. What about Frontier? ULCC. Take a look at what shares are doing. Spirit would owe Frontier, by the way, $94 million if it ultimately decided to break off the merger that both boards have agreed to. There is no indication that that is going to happen, but we do know that Spirits has said, look, we'll look at the bid from JetBlue. Whether or not they have to break it off with Frontier remains to be seen. Melissa, what is interesting here is JetBlue is saying, look, we will be the ultimate low-cost carrier nationwide if Spirit and JetBlue get together, and that we will be a true competitor to the big four, American, Delta, United, and Southwest. But what happens with uh, exposure to Florida? Spirit is already headquartered down there, has a hmm. big route network that covers a lot of the cities in Florida. So does JetBlue. If they combine, they would have 170 daily flights into Florida. You think regulators would go for that? We'll have a chance to talk with Robin Hayes during a press conference tomorrow morning. We'll see what he has to say. They clearly believe that they can make this deal happen. And at this point, they are offering $3.6 billion for Spirit. Melissa, back to you. If they sold some of those gates in Florida, Phil, who could benefit? Just trying to game this out a little bit. Depends on who would get them. It, it, it really mm -hmm. depends on who would get them. I mean, okay. look, Florida is very lucrative for all of the airlines. So uh, if, if regulators said, sure, you can do this, but you've got to show, sell some of your gates, your slots, uh, there would be no shortage of bidders who would right. say, we want them. All right, Phil, thank you. Keep us posted on this. Phil LeBeau with the latest uh, in the airline industry. Tim, what does this mean? I mean, in terms of timing, I mean, does this 
typically go with any sort of point in the cycle when this happens? Well, certainly playing some offense, right, yeah. if you think about it, and also where capacity has been pulled back. And in some sense, you have these companies that are leaner and meaner. It's interesting to me from a balance sheet perspective, this comes at a time that JetBlue's gone out there. They've had a couple of recent in investor days or moments they've actually spoken to the analyst community and said balance sheet repair was important to them and that they are trying to get back to somewhere around, you know, 30 to, you know, 30 to 35 percent. They're currently around 55 percent debt to equity. And, and that's something that, you know, there, there's two and two point two billion in cash or two point one three something uh, that's offered here along with shares. I mean, that doesn't do that. And it puts them in a more levered position. That would worry me here. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they were in a, you know, money raising two years ago. They were in a horrific position. The idea that now they would make an all cash bid for. So it's not just the three point three billion. It's the plus the additional three and change billion of debt. That's kind of amazing. They feel like they can do it. They say it's accretive in the first year that the savings would be six to seven hundred million. Maybe I can't really argue with that. It does seem to be a superior deal to Delaware Corp. But I don't know from a regulatory standpoint, we're in a different environment now. Airline mergers in the past have been difficult to get done anyway. They're slow. They take a long time. They've got to look at this Florida situation Mm -hmm. and analyze that as a as a semi uh, an old risk arb. This is one I would not play. Guy, what do you make of this? You know, I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist, as you know, and in (laughs) sports, sometimes teams try to drive up the price of a player to get the other team to pay up and to sort of hurt that other team. And maybe that's what JetBlue's doing here. They probably know it's not going to happen. Maybe it forces, look at you, thinking like G-Swizz here. You know, so maybe they're driving up the price, thinking the Frontier's going to have to pay more. JetBlue figuring not going to get it anywhere. I'm with Karen on the risk arbitrage front. Spirit Airlines has been an eight-year downtrend since I think North when it traded north of $83 in November of 2015, 14 or so. So I think this is one of those rallies to be faded. But this is not the last chapter in the stance. And Frontier is probably going to have to pay up if they want it, is my sense. All right, coming up elsewhere in the transport space, the IYT ETF dropping nearly 3% today. But there is a name in the space that has one of our traders ready to hit the buy button. We'll tell you what it is, plus so much for a passive investment. What Elon Musk joining Twitter's board of directors means for the social stock. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. The transport trade in trouble today. The IYT ETF down nearly 3%, but one stock is catching Karen's eye. Karen, what are you looking at? Yes, I'm looking at UPS. UPS last quarter came out with fantastic earnings. The stock rallied a lot. Got lucky. Sold my stock, unfortunately, put some of that into FedEx, which uh, we saw what happened with their earnings, which weren't terrible except for Omicron. And at that time, we talked about Omicron falling heavier in FedEx quarter than UPS. And so UPS has been getting hit in the last couple of weeks since then on the fears of whatever hit FedEx at Omicron, labor shortages. Um, But I think the valuation has come down now to about 15 times. I love the management. I love the margin improvement that they've had. I still think we have somewhat of a reopen effect to have, um, which if they can deliver to businesses and more concentrated deliveries, that's good for them. So at this valuation, I feel like, you know, it's kind of on sale and I want to buy some tomorrow. 
UPS is clearly the quality of the two compared to FedEx. And it's not that I, I don't think FedEx can reassert itself, but, but FedEx is trying for the gross margins that UPS has. And they're three or four turns south of where UPS is. In fact, if they were there, uh, I think FedEx would probably be $40 st- higher in stock. Over to the IYT, we talked about transports, which are down almost uh, actually a little north of 10 percent in five sessions. UNP and the rails are you know, a major part of that move, in my view. And it's telling you something about maybe where demand is. Remember, we talk about transports being very cyclical. UPS is 18 percent of that ETF, too. So look under the hood and see what you own. Those are major concentrations when you think you're buying a diversified transportation ETF. That's right there at 36 percent. So, Guy, as you recall, we had Mr. Chris Verone of Strategus on yesterday. He said we were losing the banks. We're losing the semiconductors. And now look here at the transports. What does this point to? And I threw in a Godfather reference that you had no idea what I was yeah, talking I about, but know. that's what I do. No, I mean, listen, obviously the transports are important, not nearly as important as when myself and Mr. Dow created them back in the day, but important <laughs> nonetheless. And, you know, they're so economically sensitive and they've been carried to Tim's point by, if you look at Union Pacific, that's 18 percent of the ETF. That stock has been on fire, starting to roll over. UPS, second biggest holding. Ran into trouble at that May 2021 high, starting to roll over a bit. So I'm not sure, I'm not ready to pull, I'm not ready to say we've lost the transports yet, but they're clearly rolling over. Karen is 100% correct, by the way. UPS is cheap. You know what's even cheaper by almost a full turn is Federal Express, which hasn't traded well either, which is also a top five holder in the IYT. So Along with the HYG, which we've talked about for a while, LQD, you got to have the transports up on your screen without question. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Musk gets social. The Tesla CEO tweeting his way onto Twitter's board of directors. So what's in store for the stock? And can we expect an edit button? Plus, a big box bump. Walmart trading near all-time highs. So will this retailer keep rising? The traders are breaking it down next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Elon Musk adding another title to his resume. Twitter director, the news helping shares of the social media network close back above the $50 mark for the first time since last November. Our next guest says Musk could bring new life to a company that has lagged behind its competitors. Let's bring in Sahil Bloom, SRB Ventures Managing Partner. Sahil, great to have you with us. Um, this is a guy with tremendous reach. This is a guy also when, when he was in the throes of, of production hell for his car, set up tents in the parking lot in order to get the stuff done. So what can we expect here? Because I feel like we should be expecting a lot in a short amount of time. Yeah, the fact of the matter with Elon Musk is that he moves fast. Uh, You you guys were on here yesterday and I was watching and we were talking about whether he was going to get more active and be involved. And now here we are a day later and he's on the board. And we had all the tweet storms going out today and, you know, the edit button, everything that he's doing. The guy just moves, love him or hate him. And I think it means a lot for Twitter. When you think about the stock and you look at what they've done over the last 10 years, the product fundamentally has not changed over a long period of time. And that's a huge issue for them. They haven't innovated and they haven't been able to ship new features to customers. And the people on the platform are languishing. 
Yeah, Sahil, I think that's a really good point. And we were talking about it again last night. We we're just saying that, you know, if you put a couple product fixes in, that maybe keeps some of the people that are power users very happy, but it doesn't grow that audience. And that audience really hasn't grown much. They have 330 million monthly active users, and it's never really going to get to a billion. So how do you, like, you know, I don't think the ex-CTO as new CEO can fix those sorts of things. And I don't really think Elon as a passive investor, even as a board member, can fix that. What are some of the things that grow the audience? Yeah, so I'm going to disagree with you a little bit here, Dan. And, and I think one of the things when you think about new product features rolling out, this all comes down to people being able to create more engaging, more immersive content on the platform. When you're able to do that, that draws in new audience. That's how you grow the platform. It's because people are able to create more. They're able to create more communities, more engaging content. And these new product features, while one might not do it, an edit button might not be the thing that does it. An edit button plus longer form content by a review plus Twitter communities plus Twitter spaces, if they're able to keep innovating around these new things, that allows creators like myself to be able to go and create that engaging content that draws in new users. So that would be the bull case if, if it were up to me. By the way, we were saying yesterday Elon Musk filed a 13G. He's just converted that to a 13D. So we filed the activist filing with the SEC now. So it's official that he is now an activist investor in Twitter. Uh, Karen's combing through the 13D. She alerted this to me um, just a few minutes ago. Sal, in terms of um, what Elon could, I mean, thinking about what Elon likes, you know, an open forum, uh, more diverse views, uh, crypto, NFTs, will these things help Twitter monetize or at least keep the, the, the users sticky to the platform? I think you're going to see a lot more testing from them and they're going to try new things. They're going to test new stuff. Uh, and it's going to be a more interesting time. It sort of turns Twitter into a little bit of a meme stock, right? You saw the options activity yesterday. I know Guy was commenting on that. Uh, it, it turns Twitter into a much more exciting and probably much more volatile stock. And from a business perspective, I actually think it creates a little bit of a recruiting edge for them that hasn't existed previously that no one's really talking about. But the top engineers in Silicon Valley were not looking to go join Twitter. It was always a boring place to work because they weren't shipping product. Now, all of a sudden, you have Elon Musk involved. Maybe they're going to be moving more quickly. Maybe some of those 10x engineers that everyone talks about are going to start moving to Twitter. That is an excellent point. Sahil, always great to get your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you so much for having Sahil me. Sahil Bloom. Um, it's no telling what talent can do for a company like Twitter guy. And Sile just mentioned that in terms of, uh, you know, recruiting edge. No question about it. And if you're not following Sahil on uh, Twitter, you're doing Twitter wrong. You should absolutely follow him. His tweet threads have become must read. But I'll say this, you know, in terms of trading the stock, which is what we're typically tasked to do, we thought he could get to 55, got to 54 and change today, close enough for government work, as they say, on, again, over 200 million shares. Now the question is, is that enough in the short term? I think it is. And I think you actually see a back and fill, maybe mid to high 40s, you know, 45, 46 or so, then you buy it again. This is going to be a great stock to trade over the next couple months, without question. So Elon's 13D, it shows his purchases the last 60 days. He started buying at the end of January. The end of January. Yeah. So the stock was, I think, in the high 30s Goodbye. then, 36. Um, and then it allows him to do, and when you file a 13D, you have to say what your intentions are unlike a G. So we didn't know that yesterday, but now we know that he's joined the board. He may buy in the future. He may sell in the future. He may need liquidity. He may do whatever he wants to do because he's Elon, but you can do that in a filing. The thing that's sort of interesting to me, the standstill allows for him 
for the board to say you can't buy any more stock above 14.9% for as long as you're on the board and 90 days after you are on the board. That still holds. So who knows? Maybe he'll get bored. I don't know. And do something else. But I do think in the meantime, he's clearly going to shake things up. I, I don't know. What's it worth? I have no idea. All right, um, let's move on because we got uh, some news here. Frontier Airlines is responding to JetBlue's competing offer for Spirit. Let's get back to Phil with the latest developments. Phil? Hey, Melissa, the statement from Frontier, which just came out, is a very clear rebuke of what uh, JetBlue is proposing. In fact, the company takes JetBlue's proposal to task saying, oh, no, it is not superior to our offer, saying, unlike the compelling Spirit-Frontier combination, an acquisition of Spirit by JetBlue, a high fare carrier would lead to more expensive travel for consumers. In particular, the significant East Coast overlap between JetBlue and Spirit would reduce competition and limit options for consumers. It is surprising that JetBlue would consider such a merger at this time, given that the Department of Justice is currently suing to block their pending alliance with American Airlines. Frontier is not backing down. I think this is a clear indication, Melissa, that Frontier, while they're not raising their bid, they're not changing anything, they've already got a merger in place with Spirit, they intend to make sure that Spirit shareholders and the Spirit board is aware that they want this merger to go through. Now, do they have to amend the terms now that JetBlue has come in with an offer that JetBlue says is 37% to a premium over the Frontier merger agreement? We'll wait and see. But clearly, Frontier wants to be engaged in this, uh, and they're not going to go quietly. How do we think about um, about the, the notion that prices will go up for consumers, Phil? I mean, if there are a number of slots, X number of slots in Florida and the Department right. of Justice says in order to merge, you've got to give up Y number of slots. Don't those slots just go to somebody else? Yep. And so in theory, the, the flights are the same, the number of flights? Well, the number of flights, yes, you are correct. In fact, by the way, we have reached out to a couple of uh, data crunching organizations, Sirium being one of them, uh, and we've asked them, tell us how many flights the different carriers have into Florida. Look, if JetBlue and Spirit are going to have 170 daily flights, how does that compare with Southwest, Delta, Mm -hmm. American, United? Is it dramatically more? I don't know at this point, but 170 daily flights is going to get the attention of regulators. Now, whether or not they can say, okay, go ahead. That remains to be seen. But that's certainly going to be a sticking point. All right, Phil, thanks for keeping us posted. Phil LeBeau. Coming up, shares of facts are jumping today as the company holds its annual investor day. We're diving into the headlines. CEO Phil Snow joins us next to break down what is next for the company, our first live on-set guest. (laughs) Plus, retail rise, shares of Walmart trading near all-time highs. So is this big box worth a bet? The traders are checking it out when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Backset outperforming the S&P 500 over the past month. The financial data company holding its annual investor day here at the Nasdaq today. Phil Snow is Backset CEO. He joins us here on set. And we were just saying, Phil, you are the first live guest actually yeah. on set for Fast Clap Money. Clap them in. Yeah, Clap them nice. in. Good to have one. Thank you. So welcome to the show. Thanks. Um, in terms of how we should think about facts that you make very clear in, in numerous presentations, et cetera, that it's subscription driven. Yep. So what is the, the most sort of sensitive um, data point that determines whether the subscriptions go up or down? Well, that's a good question. So we um, 
usually what we do, Melissa, is we get into a client. We have three good business lines. We've got the traditional facts at workstation. We've got our portfolio analytics. And we've got our CTS business, which is more of a feeds and API business. Mm -hmm. So our strategy is really to land and expand. So we get a lot of our growth from existing clients. So that's really what drives subscriptions up at a particular client. I was looking at one of the uh, slides in your presentation day today, and it, it looks like the total addressable market is 32 billion. Yeah. And where are you right now? 1.7 or we, something? Yeah, like we're that? above 1.7 with uh -huh. our latest acquisition. We'll be approaching two here pretty quickly. So, how do you think about that 32? What does that 32 billion represent? That represents most of our major competitors that are servicing investment managers, investment banks, private equity firms, corporations. So, all of the data analytics firms in the space that you're all very familiar with. And it's just a question of which workflows and which data sets you have. So. All right. So talk to us a little bit. You were on the show, I think it was in December of yep. last year. You yep. kind of hinted that you're thinking about M&A. You guys made a big deal. I guess the biggest deal you have. So talk, talk to us a little bit about that and how should customers think about it? Yeah. So we're very excited to have QSIP Global Services as part of the FactSet family. And that really speaks to the uh, trend of data management. So all of our clients are struggling to manage data. That's what we do beautifully. We've got our content refinery. So this really is good synergies with our data management service services or data as a service, and it's also going to get us into some new client types. So we're very excited about that. So another question for you. One of the slides, I think, talked about raising prices. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how much your costs are going up, I would imagine, hopefully for you, less than the prices that you're able to get. Right. How do you see the, the environment for that? Do you think you can continue to raise price? We, we definitely have pricing power. Traditionally, we've only raised prices about 3%. This year, we did it 4%. We definitely could do that. I think we're going to see how things play out this year. We want long-term relationships with clients, though, so we definitely try to make it uh, fair for everyone. But if our costs go up significantly, obviously, that's going to be happening around the for everybody. Yeah. Phil, how, how do you see yourself, and again, we're the ones supposed to figure out the multiple and all the right. data that you guys yeah. provide, but, but relative to other info services companies, you traded a nice premium. And yeah. You traded a premium because, I think, of this pricing power right. uh, and a addressable market that still is significantly above where you are. Yeah. Just, just talk about how we should think about it. Yeah, know. we've always traded at a premium to our, to our peers, and everyone says, I want to wait until you come down, but you'll be waiting forever, I think, if you do that. So the subscription-based model is fantastic. Um, and there's just lots of reasons why clients want to stick with us. We're a consistently performing stock. I think there's probably less than this many stocks on the S&P 500 or public in the U.S. that have grown revenues and earnings as consistently as Faxon has. So we're, we're a safe harbor in choppy markets. We performed extremely well when the Internet bubble burst and when the mortgage crisis hit. So um, it just speaks to our product. Uh, the business model and uh, the relationships we have with all of our clients. Bill, great to see you in person. Great. Thank <laughs> you for having me. Soon. Okay. Thanks. Guy, what's the trade on FactSet? You stay long. I mean, you have had opportunities over the years. So if you look at this stock for the last you know, decade or so, there have been 15, 20, 25% peak to drop declines. And you just saw one. Made an all time high of 495 recently, traded down basically to 400. You can do that math. And here we are getting back on the horse. So, I think you get long this stock. Tim is right to point out valuation, but Phil is right to point out that, you know, if you've avoided this stock because of valuation over the last decade, you've missed out. All right. We've got a new development here on Twitter. The company confirming that it has been working on an edit feature <laughs> since last year in a tweet. The company saying, no, we didn't get the idea from a poll. We're kicking off testing within Twitter Blue Labs in the coming months to learn what works, what doesn't and what's possible. Of course, it wasn't Elon tweeting about it, right, Dan? 
Well, listen, I, I think Sawhill made some really good points about the creators there and how to grow it. And I didn't mean to sound pessimistic about it. I love it. I'm a, I'm a Twitter blue user, and I am seeing the acceleration in some of the product growth. And so, of course, they were working on some of that sort of stuff. So to me, you got to keep your existing customers happy, and then you got to give them new tools to kind of create community and kind of grow. So to me, I think it's great. Uh, I'm sure that, that Elon, because he has this mouthpiece now and he has a lot of skin in the game, um, is going to continue to profit. Yeah, I mean, the, the part of the excitement here is what we've all said. I mean, Elon is a micromanager. He's going to be on top. If you were working on this last year, what took you so long? I mean, get yeah, it yeah. out there. And yeah. that on top of the, you know, the, the anti-censorship and some of the things that I think a lot of people out there are excited about. All right, coming up, Walmart trading near all-time high. So is this retailer worth checking out? We're digging into the name next. In April, it's Financial Literacy Month. Your CNBC contributor, Nelson Raineri, with what he learned after coming to the U.S. I arrived along with my family when I was three and a half years old from Cuba, and we didn't have anything but $50 and a lot of dreams. But what we learned was that we live in a country that for those who are willing to learn how the financial system works, educate themselves, and work hard, there are pathways to increasing personal wealth. It's been an exciting journey, and I encourage all Americans to take advantage of a lot of the free resources to educate themselves more on personal finance. Money. Despite a down day on Wall Street, Walmart managing to eke out gains today. Shares of the big box retailer topping the tape, inching toward an all-time high. So what's uh, rolling this name higher, Karen? plan rollbacks, of course. <laughs> yes. Um, I guess it's just, you know, when we're in this inflationary environment and you're that big, you're the biggest retailer, who's the best able to pass along prices? I think Walmart. For a long time, we talked about Walmart, Target, back and forth. Last year, Target was the winner. This year, Walmart seems to be the winner. I'm long them both. But the relative valuation, Walmart in the low 20s, Tiger, uh, Target in the mid-teens, I prefer Target, but I do own both, and I have, I have more Target than Walmart. Yeah, and of course, Walmart and Target, the likes of these big box retailers can really squeeze their suppliers, Guy, too, in order for them to bear the burden of increased prices. <clears throat> They win in this environment. Now Walmart's finally, after a long time of just going sideways, is making its move. And I think there's more room. I think Karen, Tim, and Dan would agree. On valuation alone, you got to like Walmart. But then you throw in these other names, like dollar stores. We mentioned Dollar Tree, Dollar Gen. They've sold off recently, getting back off the mat. These are the names I think you can own in the environment that I think we're about to get into. All right, coming up, it's been a volatile ride for the markets this year, and there's no shortage of fears weighing on investors. So what is the number one concern keeping traders awake at night? We'll bring you the full report next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's take another look at the markets today. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ, Russell 2000 also, all sinking on fears the Fed could be even more aggressive in its tightening. And all the volatility as Investopedia's latest reader survey pointing to the highest level investor concern since May 2020. Joining us now to break down the results is Investopedia editor-in-chief Caleb Silver. Um, Caleb, no surprise, it's, a, it's really a panoply of worries that we all Ooh. talk about every single day. 
that are really plaguing investors at this point. Yeah, and 51% of our readers are somewhat concerned, if not very concerned, about what's going on. Very high anxiety right now. Any one of these issues, inflation, the geopolitical instability in Ukraine, uh, rising rates, would freak anybody out. You add them all together, you're going to get a lot of anxiety. Somebody cue Mel Brooks, because that's what we're feeling right now. I saw in one of the slides, though, that most investors do think that the S&P 500 will still go higher. I mean, not by a lot. I think it's 0 to 5% up. But still, that there are gains ahead. Oh, they're always hopeful. And even when the market pulls back, even when we hit a little bear market in the NASDAQ a few weeks ago, very hopeful, always optimistic, always looking for opportunity. But they're freaked out right now. So they are kind of hiding out in index funds, hiding out in ETFs, hiding out in commodity ETFs as well, not doing individual stock picking, although they stick with their favorites and their favorites are the biggest stocks in the world. So let me ask you, how does your survey, how did they, are they a good prognosticator or are they a contraindicator? No, they're a pretty good prognosticator because these are retail investors. They're engaged. A lot of them are DIYers. Some of them work with financial advisors, but they put money to work. You have to in order to take the survey. But we always find that they're usually pretty freaked out is just when things get really bad and then sentiment starts to shift a little bit and they're the first ones in. So they're always looking for opportunities to take advantage of a down market or of a volatile market. And, and Cale, where where are they expressing that they're, they're feared that we're in bubble territory? And where, where are the trades that I think it look overextended, even after we pulled back and even after they're so bearish? Um, and maybe the contrarians in us think that those are places to go invest. Yeah, well, they always like the home cooking, the big mega cap tech stocks. So those have always been their favorites. They've been adding some oil. They've been adding some pharma over the past few months. So we've seen that happen. But pulling back in general from individual stocks and either not investing at all or buying index funds and ETFs, hoping to ride it out, hoping for the upturn. Over half of invested readers believe there is a bubble. It's 54%. Residential real estate, 31%. Bitcoin, NFTs, Doge, EVs. These are all things that were loved by the retail investor not that long ago. Yeah, and just a few months ago when I talked to you in the last survey yeah. we did, they were worried about bubbles in the stock market. That got taken care of. They were worried about Bitcoin. That got taken care of. Now it's real estate, and you can understand why. All right, Caleb, it's always great to see you. Thank you for coming by. Thanks for Our having second me. live guest here at the NASDAQ. It's a big night tonight. It's, it's We've got a lot of people here. Momentous. Except for one person, Guy Adami. <laughs> Um, <laughs> What's up, guys? Oh, what are you oh, doing? What do you, what do you make of uh, how the retail trader is feeling? I mean, retail investors have been a force in the market, we have learned. Force in the market. They've also been astute in some of their um, buying and selling habits, without question. I, you, you can't be underestimated. And say what you want. They become a force in this market, and you have to take uh, some of the things that Caleb talks about specifically into consideration when you're making decisions. So good for him and his work. More importantly, you know, good for the DIYers. Is that what he said? I don't know what that means. But good mm -hmm. for them <laughs> for getting involved in the market. Yeah, well, the other thing I'll just say is he said, where are they hiding out right now in indexes and ETFs? And I think that's really interesting. You know, I get asked the question all the time, if the market were to come in precipitously anytime soon, what would you do? And I'd say Q's and twos. I'd say the NASDAQ 100, the QQQ, yeah. because you're going to get those mega cap names. Those right. are going to be proved to be recession proof relative to the other stuff. And then you're going to get all those dozens of names in the Q's that have basically been cut in half or more. And then twos. I just don't think Treasury yields are going up meaningfully from here. And I think that's the, you know, 60-40-like sort of thing that we do? <laughs> Something like that. Maybe. Uh, sticking with the retail trader, take a look at Robinhood getting hit hard today, erasing nearly all of its gains since announcing extended trading hours last week. Despite the carnage, option traders are betting the stock is due for a turnaround. Mike Cuz got the action. Mike? 
Yeah, so Robinhood is always one of the busiest single stock options that are traded. Maybe not as busy it has been over the last couple of weeks, but still ranked among the top 50. And calls did outpace puts by more than two to one. The most active options were the weekly 14 strike calls that expire this coming Friday. We saw over 15,000 of those trading for about 18 cents a contract. That was opening activity, and buyers of those calls are obviously betting that Robinhood could go above that $14 strike price by at least the 18 cents that they paid. That would put it basically back to levels that haven't been seen for over a week. Tim, what do you think of Robinhood going higher at this point? Well, first of all, Dan nailed that trade. I think he said, you know, fade this and there's not much there. I, I, I've been someone that at least has said I think there's intrinsic value in that investor base and their customer base, really. And, and I think the investor base has actually run very far away. I, I think it's a case where um, there's a significant value to the demographic, to the stickiness, and I think they need to get that platform in, in, in gear. We just talked about that a lot of those core assets, uh, asset classes that have been really fundamental to that, I, I think, are under pressure. Doesn't surprise me the stock is. Mike, thanks. For more Options Action, tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Guy. Have you seen McKesson, Mel? I know you have because you pay attention. MCK. Tim? We talked about Walmart. I'm long, and I believe the valuation, as Karen pointed out, relative to itself, very attractive here. Karen? Yeah, the transport. It's been down 35 points or so. UPS, if it opens down tomorrow, I'm going to buy some. Dan. Yeah, shout out to Poppy. David Gould, 87 years old. He's been watching our show for years and years. His final trade's Blackstone. He loves it. Mine is JetBlue. Happy birthday, Poppy. Poppy. Thanks for oh, watching nice. Fast Money. Special thanks to Poppy. <laughs> Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. <laughs> 